welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, I'm Out of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. Okay, I have got a repeater for this outing and a heavyweight one at that. He is Dr. Inferno, host of Doom Mintamore podcast, which discusses crime, parapolitics, apocalypticism, and extremism, among my favorite subjects. Thank you so much for joining us again this evening, Doc. Thank you, Stephen. It's always a pleasure. Indeed, and this is going to be a freaking amazing show. So... For some time now, I've wondered if I experienced a bit of the old Mandela effect in regards to the infamous Columbine shooting of 1999. Sure, everyone listening to this is aware of what I'm talking about. Uh, Maybe not necessarily about the Mandela effect aspect of it, but the shooting itself, that is to say. Columbine was one of the most pivotal events of the past quarter century, if not more. Among other things, it made the mass shooter especially those operating in schools, chick. Prior to Columbine, alleged disaffected weirdos gravitated more towards serial murder. But the Columbine shooters and their striking black trench coats flipped that script. Serial killers suddenly looked passe in comparison. A lifetime of rage could be distilled in a few moments of epic violence. What's more, it was even more culturally shocking than serial murder. Again, especially when schools were the target of choice. As for myself, I've long been haunted by memories of my middle school awash with police officers, but this would have had to have been in 1997. I had started high school the following year. Actually, I think it was even towards the end of 97, if I remember correctly. A school shooting had occurred many miles away, but... For, I think, nearly a week, cops were posted at the school as a precaution. I had long linked this incident to Columbine until I realized that it wasn't possible. Columbine happened in 1999, well after I had graduated from middle school, again around 1997. But I still had this weird connection, too, with black trench coats, a school shooting, and something that had happened in 97. So what was it? Turns out, I wasn't experiencing the glitz in the Matrix. Rather, I had confused Columbine with an incident that that had occurred in 1997. It was a school shooting in Pearl, Mississippi. This one was also carried out by a self-disaffected loner in a black trench coat. In fact, there's a lot of striking similarities to Columbine 
And yet, this incident has been widely rabbit holed, despite arguably being the first modern school shooting. Again, it certainly was not the first school shooting, just simply the one at the beginning of the modern era of school shootings. What gives? Why has this incident been so thoroughly forgotten? It may have something to do with the curious characters surrounding the event. Seriously, you're going to be shocked by some of the connections that come up with this incident. Maybe I wasn't experiencing the Mandela effect concerning a pre-Columbine shooting, but there's no doubt in my mind that this event has profoundly influenced reality and our perception of it. I know that sounds crazy, but so too are the synchronicities surrounding this incident. So, on that note, let us start the show. Okay, Doc, this obviously isn't a subject a lot of people are familiar with. So to start off with, why don't you give us an overview of what unfolded in Pearl, Mississippi on October 1st, 1997 at that high school there? Okay, guys, I'm going to get a little graphic here. So my apologies as we go throughout this story. It, it bears a lot of striking resemblance to some of the other cases that I have covered with uh, with recluse such as the Kiwi Farms, the uh, stuff with Isabella Janky. So there is like some very sensitive subjects involved. So, you know, it bit just so spoiler, happens. A bit of a Go spoiler, ahead. though. I, I At least I think we're not going to be discussing incest. In this <laughs> we we actually might uh, when we get. Jesus, Doc. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right. Not, all not, right. A, not regards to the shooting, but uh, towards more of the, uh, the other stuff we might. <sighs> I was hoping we could avoid this. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just it, there just seems to be there seems to be some synchronicity with like uh, you know some of these kind of weird sort of occultic uh, you know uh, let's just say secret societies and and the elites and and incest for whatever reason I don't know what it is the Gosh, upper middle would class. Ever imagine that. <laughs> it seems the upper class blue bloods they like their incest. I, what can I say? Oh. Um, so basically, what happened was in October. The first 1997, uh, Luke uh, Woodham, who was a disaffected youth, about 15 or 16 years old, he woke up around 5 a.m. Now, he was being largely coerced by another youth 
who is a leader of the cult, Croth, which we'll talk about later on in, in the show, uh, which was modeled after like an RPG game and a demon. So he, um, he was under the influence of this kid, and he also was disaffected by his mother. His mother was extremely overbearing. So one of his first targets, he woke up at 5 a.m., and coincidentally, according to like the kid Grant Boyett, who was the leader of the cult, told him that Anton LaVey from the Satanic Bible uh, commemorated 5 a.m. in the morning to be when you to commune with the demons, when demons were at their most active. I don't know the veracity of that, but obviously Luke believed that. He woke up bright and early and spry around 5 a.m. He went to the kitchen to go get a butcher knife. Uh, he was startled because he thought his, he was going to sneak up on his mother and stab her. Uh, this is something also like he pre-shadowed previously when he was talking to his friend Lucas. He thought he was going to catch his mother uh, surprised and unaware, but he was startled to see that his mother was uh, on her way to the kitchen. He grabbed the butcher knife. He chased his mother into uh, her room. Her, the mother tried to barricade herself uh, in the room. And of course, the VI kind of shining style, he knocked down the door uh, because like obviously she was putting up the ironing board and everything else to stop Luke uh, from, from killing her. So what happened was, is that Luke, before he stabbed his mother about seven times, and four of those stabs being fatal, most of them were just they scraped the surface. It kind of showed that Luke was kind of have se- was having second thoughts about killing his mother. But all while this was happening, he was going in his head. The the uh, the, the Grant Boyett, Marshall Grant Boyett, the the cult leader, was in his head, telling him, instructing him to kill his mother. Now this is his exact words that he said in his confession. So he plunged the knife into his mother, uh, and. And finally uh, killed her, put the pillow over her head, which some of the investigators noted noted when they discovered her body. Um, and uh, they, they said that this showed some remorse to, uh, you know, for for the killings. And um, so basically he went to go get his father's 3030, his father's 3030, because he had scoped out the 3030 and he had. Um, planned on taking the 3030 basically to his class. Now, he discussed this with his friend Lucas and also with the cult leader, Grant Boyett, previously. And he also actually, while he was killing his mother, and after he killed his mother, he actually was on the phone with Grant. And we don't know for sure because it's never been disclosed in either the trial of what he was talking about with Grant exactly. Um and as you'll see later on, that Grant pretty much escapes. You know, this is kind of a spoiler alert. Uh, Grant escapes unscathed from this, almost unscathed from this entire affair. He doesn't really get much punishment. So he writes his will. He writes a will. He entrusts, of course, his tape CDs. And yes, uh, he has a Marilyn Manson CD that he gives. He wants to give to Grant. He gives most of his guitars to Grant. And I think Christ Superstar, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was Antichrist Superstar. You yeah, got that it. was like the year, yeah, that it came out. It was really big in the whole goth thing this year. Yeah. And and that was the CD that he loved. Um and yeah. what he did just what to he interject did. here, right? Go ahead, good. One thing that 
you know, now that we're kind of on the subject that it really jumped out to me that I found peculiar about this was how it seems to mirror um, the much later uh, uh, Sandy Hook shooting. I think that oh, was yeah. 15 years later, because that was the same kind of scenario where the shooter opened up by uh, killing his mother at their home. Oh, yeah. Um, it's actually, I mean, even then kind of almost a similar socioeconomic background, too, because I see it. Because this Luke kid was from like what a kind of an upper middle class background, right? I would say he's solidly middle class. I don't know how much upper middle class, but I'm guessing the cul-de-sac that he lived in was uh, was fairly affluent for yeah. that area. No, it is interesting. I mean, it's kind of a similar repeat with this uh, kind of kid living with a single mother, sort mm-hmm. of domineering, opens up, divorced. With, yeah, divorced, opening up with him, murdering her. Um, you know, just another one of the strange sinks about this whole thing. Yeah, that is that is kind of strange, but I think that's kind of t- that was probably kind of typical around that area. And in, in most, you know, you'd you'd be surprised how typical that kind of is, and how that caused a lot of a lot of alienation and loose life. Um, and partially, that's kind of why he sunk into like a depression. But I'll I'll get into that later. So anyway, he gets his father's thirty thirty. He takes he writes a will. He also writes a manifesto. He writes a five page manifesto, which that'll play into like the whole entire scheme later. Um, he takes his father. He like he, t- he takes his th- father's thirty thirty. Takes it out of the casing, the camo casing, place it on his bed along with the empty shells. Uh, the empty 3030 shells. And also with a copy, of course, Marilyn Manson. He takes all of his writings. He and you gotta understand, Luke has poor eyesight. He's he's um not the most athletic. Uh he's very, very kind of chubby, uh, very portly. So he and he's like his eyesight is very bad, and he's never handled a gun in his life, never touched a uh, a rifle in his life. But this is his father's rifle. He goes out to his mother's Corsica uh, and drives off. The neighbors notice that he's going off and sporadically in every which direction. They notice and they think this is kind of odd. Now, this is the same neighbor that saw him and Grant uh, abuse his beloved Shih Tzu, Sparkle, which we'll, we'll talk about that later. Unfortunately, like this episode does involve some like graphic detail so he drives off he gets to the school around 8 a.m he gets to the school the commons around 8 a.m he sees his ex-girlfriend and i i'm saying ex-girlfriend lightly because christina uh mayfrey was kind of just being sympathetic to him because she felt sorry for him she was kind of new to the school and uh she thought maybe Luke was, you know, kind of lonely and desperate and kind of wanted to help him out, I guess. So anyway, he developed attachment to her. So he goes to Christina Mayfrey. He sees like his friends. He goes to Justin Sledge. Justin Sledge, he hands his manifesto and all his writings to Justin, Justin Sledge, uh, which will play into this whole thing later. And Christina, of course is with there with his other friend Lydia Drew. Now Lydia Drew was the sister of one of the people that was sim- that was sympathetic with Luke after everybody was bullying bullying him and picking on him and treating him like garbage. Uh, so what Luke did is Luke aimed directly at Christina and shot her, fatally wounding her right in the chest. 
So he kills her, and then he kills Lydia Drew in the back, because Lydia Drew is trying to run away from Luke. Um, and this sort of, like, star of course, just, like, startles the entire school. You have to understand, 1997, I would imagine this is not a very common uh, thing. You know, this is not a very common thing in school, although there was a few, you know, school shootings before this. This was not commonplace. This was kind of shocking to most people. Yeah, I you, would, just, uh, you, you didn't think about this kind of stuff like back then. I mean, I can, I, I just when I was graduating from high school in 2000 was when you started to see kind of the effects of Columbine coming in with like the really uh, militarized almost atmosphere of schools. I mean, I know when I would drive by my high school afterwards, I mean, it's like they had fences up all around the whole thing and what have you. Even when I was there, they had started to have like undercover cops and stuff. But, yeah. you know, going back to middle school, there was just, there was none of that. You know, there was the one, I, I think you, you know, probably know this in Florida, they always had like the one sheriff's deputy. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That was yeah. like, president of the school we <laughs> called him like deputy dipshit in our case he was just like fat <laughs> yeah. holding you know yeah. cop i mean probably five years from retirement or something yeah. So, yeah this is just you know i you i could easily walk off this campus anytime i wanted to i mean you know that was all gone within a couple of years of columbine <laughs> yeah the police in uh in in my school would always just uh search you for tobacco products and uh you know, write you up for that and maybe suspend you for that. That was they didn't kind even of bother with extent. any of that crap, man. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, there's no searches. Everybody smokes cigarettes in the uh, the boys' restroom at high school, man. I mean, uh, I guess mine might have been a little bit more strict. I mean, it was well, I did come from an or more urban environment, I would imagine. Well, no, I was I actually went to the really high end high school in uh, Volusia County. Uh, at the time, I mean, it was the one that had like the AP and the I, the very exclusive IB program that all the uh, brains from around the county wanted to go to and ended up there for. So, you know, again, this is just how it was before all the Columbine stuff really started to go into high gear. You know, you um, didn't have the metal detectors, you didn't, weren't searched and what have you, even in these really ritzy preppy high schools and whatnot still go and smoke in the men in the boys bathroom so after that basically luke law lost grasp of the gun and it just went haywire because he didn't have he had poor eyesight poor execution and probably even poor breath control because he was uh overweight and so like you i would imagine to aim and uh, fire the gun you have to have you know good breath control uh good accuracy so his accuracy was just off and i think he injured maybe 11 people don't quote me on that because the like i said a lot of the stuff that i'm looking up on the pearl mississippi case is very scant uh it's not exact they get a lot of things wrong so forgive me if i get some of the facts wrong about the case uh but for what i understand is that he just started going haywire after he killed christine Mif mifri uh, and he didn't mean to hit, I think he didn't mean to hit Lydia Drew, but she kind of got caught, uh, was collateral damage. I hate to use that term, but that was kind of like from his consideration, I think that's the, what he, uh, he was there to do. Now, this alerted a guy named uh, Joel Myrick. Joel Myrick was the principal who has since, I believe, wrote a book, If I Knew, uh, which is kind of weird because... You know, in most cases with a lot of these school shooters, like there was already warning signs about Luke and 
about uh, Grant Boyett and all of his, you know, people he hung around with. There was just warning signs all over. Yeah, I was going to say, they didn't think it was, like, unusual that they had effectively founded, like, a cult or something. No, I mean... (laughs) I think it was not within the purview of most adults. Adults were kind of just doing their own thing. You know how adults are kind of were probably at that time they were people that were trying to work as hard as they could to, you know, provide kind of a middle class existence for their kids. So I think a lot of them really, you know, kids kind of have a world on their own and the adults really don't, you know, meddle unless they kind of see direct signs that's right in front of their face. But what was shock? Well, maybe not shocking is the Keystone cops basically were oblivious to all of this details. The, the school officials and authorities were oblivious to all of this. And I think mainly it was probably an embarrassment to a lot of the, the school staff or maybe not. I, I don't know. I, I get the impression that most and I don't want to pass judgment here. I get the, the impression that a lot of school officials are apathetic about what goes on in their schools. And while I won't defend Luke, uh, I do think it was rather unfortunate. A lot of things that happened to him that probably, you know, we'll get into that later. Uh, but I think there's, it's unfortunate, like kind of no, uh, you know, teacher or authority figure sort of stepped in and this whole entire ordeal could have probably smoothed out the situation at least the best they could. Um, now, Luke, I think Luke probably had a bit of maybe as, and I, and I'm not a, like I said, I'm not a psychologist. Um, not a, a medical doctor, obviously, but I get the impression that Luke may have had some minor signs of Asperger's syndrome because when the principal went out there and Luke, of course, tried to escape and he was a very bad driver. So another student boxed him in. So when, you know, when Joel Myrick, the assistant principal went in there, but by the way, Joel Myrick, I think had some, uh, some background in military. He actually was stationed in Granada either with the uh, Navy or with like, I believe the army or one of, one of those branches, but he was, a, he was an active reserve. He was a reserve guy. He was active in Granada and which is not unusual, but um, that they're in those kind of positions, but he goes and he, he, points, with the invent, but they did in 83. Yeah. 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 I think so. Yes. Yes. He was, he was involved in that. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Michael Flynn actually participated in that one too. Yeah, he. I think he was just a soldier there, yeah, uh, but he, he wasn't probably, involved. I think Granada. it was mainly done by the 101 Airborne, if I remember. Yes, that's true. that's actually the what he was a member of. Oh, that's very interesting. Because again, the yeah. one, I mean, it's not a special operations force, but it is a rapid response force. It's definitely one of the more elite uh, conventional army units. I think they're supposed to be able to deploy like anywhere in the world within. T- 48 to 24 hours or something to that effect. Um, and again, obviously it's, uh, I think it's really the only uh, regular army airborne unit that we have left. Um, the 84th doesn't even really, or the 82nd doesn't really do that anymore. Uh, but yeah, no, that's, that's definitely interesting because this is a, um, it's a veteran of a unit, you know, that would be used as the spear tip of a lot of major military operations. It's not, you know, just like using logistics or, you know, supplies or something like that. Yeah. Well, he um he went out to his truck and he went to go get his 45, uh, you know, 45 uh, semi-automatic pistol. And of course, he chased down um, Luke, who is now boxed in by the students. He pointed the gun and said, freeze, get out. 
you know, um, and then Luke, I guess, was kind of startled by it. Uh, Luke complied. Luke said, uh, Luke started saying, they've treated me like shit all my life. I wanted to I wanted to get back at them, you know, and, and like uh, he was saying stuff like, well, if you think your life is rough, rough here, wait till you go to parchment, which penitentiary, which is the uh, prison in Mississippi. And uh, he pulls his coat over his head. And by the way, Luke um, was equipped with a blue trench coat, not a black trench coat, but a blue trench coat from which he put over his head. And then he subdued him down to the ground, pointed the pistol at him. And then Luke, this is why I say I think Luke might have had some Asperger's syndrome or something, because he said, because Luke worked at Domino's in in the area. And he said to Joe Myrick, I gave you a discount on your pizza. You know, um, which was kind of it's kind of sad because you could tell like Luke, no one had really been nice to him most of his uh, most of his years. And I hate to say this. We all know a kid in school that's kind of like Luke. And, you know, some people feel bad for him. It doesn't excuse what he did, uh, but there's always a kid like him in school and they, they do exist. And. Uh, I'm not defending him. I'm just simply saying they do exist. And, and um, it, no one was really that, that nice to him. It, it didn't give him any excuse to go and do what he did to, you know, those two people. And by no means am I excusing what he did. So afterwards, after Luke was apprehended and brought down to the station, the police officers noticed that there was cuts on Luke's hand. And he said to the, he said, the, I think the police officer, as they were fingerprinting him, asked him, why do you have these cuts on your hand? He said, well, I killed my, I killed my mommy. I killed my mommy. So they, I guess they followed what Luke said and they went to his house uh, and they found, of course, uh, Mary and uh, Woodham there basically just lying dead on her bed with like seven stab wounds and a lot of, and I should mention also, he used a bat to also strike strike her as well, and uh, blunge and turn to death. In addition to that, they also found the pillow overhead, which I read to a lot of researchers, to a lot of people that investigate crime scenes. This does indicate uh, a type of remorse, and it doesn't. It looks like he was apprehensive about going through with the killing of his mother, but he still did, and. That, that pretty much is what happened on that fateful day of October the 1st, uh, 1997. All right. To clarify, I actually was confused on the airborne okay. units here. It was the, it's the 82nd Airborne. That was the one in Grenada, and that's the one in Fort Bragg. The one yeah, that, I, that does sound familiar to yeah, me. I'd have to check is and the see. one in, in um, oh, Kentucky, if I remember correctly. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that, guys. It's the 82nd Airborne that would have been the major force with that. And that is the one um, that Michael Flynn was a member of when he uh, went to Grenada in 83. And another um, interesting figure that participated in that uh, was a woman named Paige Kellogg, who was a paratrooper. So I've got to assume she was probably a member of the 82nd since they were the only... um, the other uh, military units in there were Army Special Forces, uh, you know, basically uh, the Rangers, the other special oper- actual special operations forces. But uh, for those of you unfamiliar, Paige Kellogg uh, is the wife of General Keith Kellogg, who also had 
longtime ties to the 82nd Airborne, uh, though not at the time of the invasion. However, um, he became a very prominent figure in Trump's administration. He actually was briefly the intern uh, national security advisor when Michael uh, Flynn was forced out. And he remained a big figure in the National Security Council pretty much throughout Trump's administration. He was actually um, one of Trump's uh, major uh, foreign policy and national security advisors. So very interesting guy it's uh quite fascinating that his wife uh i've always kind of looked at the 83rd or the excuse me the 1983 invasion of grenada with a lot of fascination because there are a lot of interesting figures like uh kellogg's wife and michael flynn who are member who participated in it it was also one of the first major outings for i think the delta force as well and it was actually even maybe kind of an early sort of run up for the what became the Joint Special Operations Command as well. Uh, though don't quote me on that. But uh, there were a lot of uh, very interesting people who would go on to have some pretty senior roles in the national security state connected to it. So it's uh, fascinating that you happen to see a veteran at the 82nd and a guy uh, or likely veteran at the 82nd and somebody who was involved in that invasion. Uh, who happens to be Johnny on the spot to uh, disarm this kid during this shooting. Before we move on, Stephen, um, I'm curious, what did you make of like the whole Anton LaVey thing? I mean, I think it was probably just an edgelord thing because I've never taken LaVey's occultism very seriously um, or his like Satanism, I should say, very seriously. But it does, it does seem that uh, Marshall Grant Boyett was kind of coaching Luke and Luke was kind of dabbling in the whole church of Satan stuff, edgy Satanist stuff. And uh, he told him to wake up directly at five o'clock in the morning. This was like the plan. And by the way, Grant made this plan to Luke. He put these, he planted these seeds in Luke's head to go and kill all the people that he felt disinfected with. Um, however, it was part of a grander scheme. I'll discuss that later on, but it was part of a grander scheme. It wasn't just simply a school shooting. Uh, he had more elaborate plans for Pearl uh, High School. Uh, but what, what are you to make of like LaVey and, and uh, him saying basically you need to wake up at five o'clock in the morning to, to commune with the demons? That's what, what are you to say about that? Yeah, I had noted that the kid was a self-professed uh, Satanist. And again, it's, you know, this is another aspect of this case, why it's curious that it's been rabbit-holed. Because again, you know, the, the guy was I mean, pretty much an acknowledged Satanist. It's, they don't even really try to hide it. No. Um, well, not just you... him. Grant was too. Grant Boyett was, uh, Marshall Grant Boyett, who is the cult leader of Croth, was an affirmed Satanist. He said that he was a Satanist. He, in most of these Satanist cases, I sort of discount them. I sort of say that it's, I just kind of shrugged them off as it's satanic panic hysteria. But in this case, it does shine through in every single aspect that um, they're very proud to proclaim they worship Satan. Yeah. And again, I mean, this is probably partly an edgelord thing like you're yeah, yeah. suggesting that's what um, i thought yeah you know because again okay so to put this into perspective um you know because i was uh you know in school right around the same time frame this was i want to say getting into like right around the heyday of the you know the what would jesus do thing you're probably too young to remember this but back in the day in the 90s you had all of these kids 
uh, that were into this stuff. They had their like little bracelets that had, uh, you know, WWJD on it and they would all like wear them around and it was this big deal. Uh, so anyway, you know, a lot of times this sort of stuff was prevalent amongst like the jocks and a lot of the, um, you know, the brains and like the AP kind of class mm-hmm. yes. of stuff. So uh, typically the weirdos Satanism was like a big thing at the time uh, as a kind of basically fuck you to those kinds of kids. Uh, again, this is really at the onset of internet culture. Uh, so it's before we really had a chance to delve into the broader milieu of satanism so you had the whole church of satan being very easily accessible you know it wasn't difficult to find a copy of the satanic bible any halfway decent barnes and noble would have had one um but the other thing about this which i i really think was probably a big part of the connection to the specifically anton LaVey and the church of satan in marilyn manson Mm, this yes. was around the time when he was hanging out with uh LeVay, if i remember correctly and had been yeah. a priest even in the church of satan so I, i'm actually kind of i'll go ahead and limb and say i don't have any evidence of this but i would suspect the kids probably got into the church of satan stuff more because of manson mm. uh, because he had really kind of made the church of satan chick at this particular um god my best friend is going to kill me for using chick uh three <laughs> times in the same broadcast but anyway um yeah this was like right around the time when he had really sort of revived levey and kind of restored him a bit to hipsterdom uh, mm. by hanging out with him and being ordained a priest in the whole church of satan bit and what have you and as for the five in the morning thing, I have n- never really heard that before. I mean, if I was to that, that was referenced in the book, uh, Child's Prey. Well, I'm just, I'm talking more. I mean, I'm not, I'm not questioning that they told him that. I'm just, you know, saying just in general, though, from my research into esoteric topics, I've never really, I haven't either, recalling, which is why I was asking you. I would guess that it probably has to do with five in the morning being kind of like the last hour, generally before dawn sets. Okay. Up. Okay. So, so you know, witching hours, right? Yeah. Well, I think I think the witching hours usually considered between midnight and one. yeah, three uh, midnight one three. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I think maybe the five in the morning thing might have had something to do with it. I, I just thought maybe gone. maybe there might have been like some occult tie there because I found I mean, that it probably is. I just you know it's not something that I'm familiar with. This is just the you know shooting from the hip here. Yeah. That's one thing that kind of jumps out to me. Well, maybe it has something to do with the fact that this is right before the first rays of dawn really start to come up so who knows i want i want to emphasize also that you're correct i think the uh, it probably did fuse it did go through uh marilyn manson but i think grant boyett marshall grant boyett also was, was very influential on luke and grant boyett probably was very acquainted with anton Levey as uh, he also is with the necronomicon which does come up in this whole ordeal and this whole tale uh, he was familiar. <laughs> of course it does. Yeah, he was familiar with the whole kind of edgelord stuff during this time that, you know, uh, pretty much, you know, let's just say ready-made Satanist kits, uh, edgelords. Uh, well, as you can guess, probably Adolf Hitler also comes up in this. The Nazis come up in this. And uh, we'll discuss that later. Yeah, yeah. this is a, this is all part of the course for this culture in the 90s. Trust me, I saw all of this firsthand, Doc. 
So do you got anything else about this Woodham kid? Is there anything um, like in his origins or anything we haven't talked yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's discuss a little bit about uh, Luke Woodham. And I have to say, I don't think there's much in terms of like what distinguishes him from like other other kind of profiles or cases that have been made on like, you know, classic school shooters. It's almost become kind of a class cliche now. Uh, but when he was eight years old, his dad left him uh, all alone with his mother. His mother was overbearing. Uh, not very many people were nice to him. He was, uh, you know, had low self-esteem. This one girl that was nice to him, Christina Mayfi, uh, was nice to him. He he does manage to make a few friends, a few other outcast friends, from which uh, also lead him into kind of to the RPG world. And so he he sort of like loses himself, let's just say, in fantasy, and fantasy and reality just becomes shifted, and he kind of loses all of his identity and all of his ego into these. Uh, these various different, I would say, uh, culture that is popular at the time. Um, that's pretty much it about Luke. Luke uh, was pretty much fit the quintessential uh, kind of classic school shooter sort of profile. If you were to take a profile of him and compare him to like Dylan Klebold or Harris, uh, there wouldn't be much difference between the two. Um, there would, the only difference I would say is that Luke was more of a follower Dylan and, and Harris were kind of more of leaders, if you could say that. There were more people that were not being led around. Luke, on the other hand, was just basically the shadow, I would say, of Grant, Marshall Grant Boyett, who was just coaxing him into uh, doing whatever his bidding was. And Boyett is actually more interesting than uh, Luke in this, in, in this whole ordeal. Um, and uh, I mean, if you want to talk about Grant for a little bit, uh, we can. Um, but I think that pretty much closes the chapter on Luke's life. I can't think of anything else that's sort of unique that uh, led him down this path other than he was kind of desperate for like friendship and for a clique to hang with. Yeah, no, we can definitely get into these other kids. Uh, so, I mean, this whole group is really intriguing. Um, so first off, is there any ties to Dungeons and Dragons with this? Because I know you had mentioned RPGs here. Okay. Now, this is interesting. This was around the time of 1996. Uh, Luke was working at his job at Domino's, and he met a friend by the name of Donnie Brooks there. Donnie Brooks told him about a kid named Grant, Marshall Grant Boyett. Marshall Grant Boyant, just like many of the other people in the cafeteria, led he was the game he was a game master. And I guess the game master was kind of a generic term they kind of used for dungeon master. Uh, however, Boyant's RPGs were a little different than other people's RPGs. Uh, his RPGs mainly were surrounded around, I could say, military figures, uh, dictators people that were extremely authoritarian, um, not so much the fantasy stuff. He was more into like despots, like Manuel Noriega. He was into Che Guevara. He was into Adolf Hitler. Uh, he was also into creating his own sort of characters from composites of D&D &D and also from like other more popular RPGs. He actually um, 
spurned the uh, vampire RPGs and a lot of the fantasy RPGs. He actually thought they were inferior to like his own creations. I mean, coincidentally, he believed in Satan and he believed in like, you know, the, the devil and all that supernatural stuff. But he somehow didn't think that vampires and D&D type lore was quite up to par with like what he was trying to construct. Um, what was striking about this was that Boyet's imagining RPGs was mainly manipulative and mainly it was concentrated on real life actions. Uh, that is planning insurrections, revolts, uh, planning sort of military scale, or at least like, you know, what he wanted to do in his own mind, uh, military scale sort of uh, insurrections and revolts and military strategy he was really into that. Uh, he was really, he was really into like, you know, I said the, the third Reich, he matter of fact, used to call himself the, the fourth Reich, him and Luke and a couple others uh, so much. So to where, so you could see that there was some borrowing from D and D, but it was mainly his kind of his own construction, which coincidentally, this is going to sound really kind of nerdy, but he liked the star Wars universe. He did it so much like the TNT universe. He liked to construct it around the star Wars universe. And, well, Mike Pochino that... wrote a you know a screenplay for the Star Wars universe, so maybe it just it resonates with that that certain mindset. Yeah, he was into that. He wasn't really into the D and D stuff. I mean, it uh... does effectively romanticize. I mean, what is essentially a Knights Templar type military order. So I mean, again, there you go. Yeah, that primarily he was into like the mil the military factions. He wasn't really into you know, like I said, the D and D lore. The D and D lore was kind of like he found it to be inferior to the stuff he would construct in his own mind. He thought you could utilize your own imagination and your own sort of like manipulative powers to construct your characters. And this is interesting. He had a, a role for every single person that was in his group. And uh, this is, by the way, prior to Croth being formed. Croth, um, it's interesting that Boyet, he, he would construct these characters and these characters would be just they would just be evil with no recourse. Like they would just get away with all their evilness. They would kill people. Sometimes he would substitute people in the fantasy world with real people. He despised and hated. Um, sometimes like he would construct sort of people's parents that were, you know, in, in these, these people in his clique, you know, parents of the, the people that were following him. They would sometimes be uh, part of the wrath. So I don't know. He seems to have been, well, he seems to have been given kind of leeway to construct whatever universe he wanted to. And he found like a whole legion of outsiders and what people perceived as losers to just manipulate and mold uh, into anything that uh, was to his liking. So um, they were pretty much like putty in his hands. All right. So, were there any uh, other kind of academic subjects that these guys had an interest in besides what you've already gotten into? Okay. Well, it's interesting you say that, and I think primarily most of the uh, academic interest did come from grants, but primarily, it seems that Justin Sledge was the person that uh, sort of gave grant because. Justin Sledge was a part of Grant's uh, circle before Luke came in contact with him. 
Justin Sledge was the person that was really into classics. He was part of the Classics Foundation on on uh, on campus, along with Luke. Luke was also involved with that. So it did seem like, in a way, that Luke's life sort of changed, and he became more acquainted with Aristotle, Dostoevsky, um, Nietzsche, and other uh, kind of philosophers. So yes, there was a bit of an academic angle to uh, the group, a.k.a. what would later become Croth. Uh, and it came primarily, I would say, from Justin Sledge, um, who had an avid interest in the classics. Now, I know you had mentioned uh, the gifted program when we were talking yes. up to this. Uh, see, it's interesting to me in that regard because, um, uh, fortunately, my parents had kept me out of that, but uh, I know my mates in Penny Royal um, had gone into the gifted program, for instance. And this would have been, because Nathan's about roughly around my age, as is Darren. So this, I think, would have been around the same era. And, of course, they would have been going to these um these schools in uh, Kentucky, so kind of a singular, uh, I'd say, situation as Mississippi. And I know one of the things that Nathan had always uh, mentioned to me that was especially peculiar is they had really had a lot of this, um, this you know, strange uh, classic literature there that they had the kids read, um, you know, like Rambula, I believe, or whatever the heck his name is. Uh, gosh, I know I'm butchering that, but yeah. Rimbaud? Rimbaud? Yes, Rimbaud, yes, yes. Yes. Matter of fact, Sledge was into Rimbaud, and so was uh, uh, so was Luke, and so was uh, Grant. Interesting. It's interesting you say that, yeah. Rimbaud yeah. Was, is very, figures very prominently. It also figures very prominently uh, by in Bennington as well, which we'll get into later when we talk about Donna Tart. So yeah, Rimbaud was uh, definitely uh, one of the imminent i would say uh poets and uh you know intellectuals that they made kids study so that's fascinating well anyway was there anything else about the gifted program that you had seen well you know i i um i made that speculation because to me justin sledge seems like and and a lot of these kids they seem like they are above average for a cul-de-sac you know kids they're above average i would say for a small sort of southern suburb and they're definitely uh more more gifted to come up with such as diabolical and sinister some of this stuff is these cults uh it does take a, a bit of brain power to construct these types of uh, worlds and universes and uh to even sort of manipulate and to craft these types of uh these types of uh, realities around in a small cul-de-sac school. And that's why I suspect that someone like Justin Sledge, now that I believe has a command of uh, of Hebrew and also Latin and uh, probably even Greek, you know? And so that's, that's why I suspect a lot of these kids and Luke himself, even though Luke was considered kind of dim-witted by most of the other students. And primarily, I think, what the problem with Luke was is that his mother was kind of overbearing and probably didn't put him on an exercise regime or kept him, kept him up in like good clothes. And, you know, as superficial as that is, I think that would have probably improved his self-esteem a little bit. Uh, it seems like he had a, a bit of a, you know, ability to grasp stuff like, um, you know, I know Nietzsche is kind of the classic sort of edgelord philosopher, but Dostoyevsky and a lot of the like concepts that he was coming up with, I, I think was sort of unique for 
someone that, that was kind of in his position. That really jumped out to me because it seemed like a lot of these kids uh, in this group were very sophisticated in terms of the uh, literature and what have you uh, that they were reading. I mean, God, I was like reading Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, I think, like around the same time. <laughs> these kids. Yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's another thing about it. And I have seen them described in a lot of the articles I read as academically gifted, but I have not, or intellectually gifted. But yes, I haven't seen anything either specifically that they were in a gifted program. But it would certainly seem to very much be the case, especially now that you've uh, brought up some of the books that they were reading in this time. This seems to be consistent with uh, what was happening with a lot of kids during that era. They were being given some of this um, very powerful classical literature to digest. Well, here's um, a question, though. Um, how familiar were kids around this time of the book, uh, The Secret History, before the advent of like social media um, or the advent of like the widespread use of the Internet? I don't I think this was a very obscure book back then. Uh, adults knew about it, but I don't think very many um, teenagers were dabbling into stuff like Donna Tartt. They may now, but I think back then it was kind of a, a little bit too highbrow for a lot of kids. Um, you know, I think you yeah, probably well, have to been... Again, I gotta think if they were in you know, again, like an AP program by this point or something. Because I know that we read uh, some interesting stuff. I mean, I know I read like Toni Morrison in my AP program, and this was back again, like around like 99, 2000 or something like that before she was like, especially well known. And then I think um, there's some other weird stuff too, that I know I read at some point. I know I did Kafka at one point in some of these, uh... but yeah, I, I could see possibly they might've been introduced to that. And Again, you know, we'll get into this later, but I think that it might have also have had to have done, uh, you know, might have been connected with um, uh, Brett Easton Ellis, mm -hmm. because yeah. there are references to the secret history and yes, of his other books. And I, he did have already a bit of this reputation at this point in time. I mean, I think I had already heard of Ellis around this time as well. That was a few years. In teenagers, though? I mean, teenagers? Yeah, I read American Psycho when I was like 16, bro. But rules of attraction are like less than zero. I mean, I, I could see that. Yeah, that's like what I'm saying. I think that, um, you know, they might, if they were in that sort of hipster mindset, I could definitely see them stumbling upon Ellis. Maybe they loved American Psycho. I mean, they were edgelords, so. Yeah, yeah, sense. yeah. They might have gone back, looked at, and I read some of Ellis's earlier books, seen the references to the secret history, and like, yeah, what is this? I mean, <laughs> well, Sle could... Sledge was the person who really pushed the secret history. You, know, um, you, could, you could go into the, um, you know, the Barnes and Noble and just be like, yeah. you know, can you do a search and see if you got something called the secret history? True oh, enough, yeah. Okay. So... Yeah, um, but anyway, before getting to Sledge, you, I knew you mentioned Grant a couple of times. Was there anything else cool about this kid you wanted to mention? Yeah, I want to mention that Grant, um, you know, besides being fascinated with like the Nazis or even even Che Guevara or Emmanuel Noriega, he actually had one of his starships in this RPG called Manuel Noriega. People were like calling their ships like, uh, you know, galaxy gliders or something. He was calling his ship uh, Manuel Noriega. He also devised characters um, that was based off the character from Broken Arrow, the John Travolta character, I think Sid from Virtuosity. He was obsessed with Che Guevara. 
uh, also obsessed with Adolf Hitler, of course, um, which I think is kind of a contrast there. He he liked, regardless of whatever political inclinations the despot had, he didn't care. Um, he gravitated towards that sort of uh, totalitarian kind of ideology and all of uh, what he saw as authoritarian and, and either leftist or, or right wing, extreme right wing sort of uh, figures. It, it didn't really matter to him. Uh, so he like also, like I mentioned previously, he kind of just he didn't have any kind of uh, moral recourse on any of his characters when he played them in any of the RPGs. He would just uh, he would just make sure that they got away with all kind of evilness. And some of the people that played with him, such as I think Jason uh, Pollen, that's that was the name of the, some of the guy that played with him back in ni- 1996 prior to discovering Luke. Um, and his friend circle, uh, he actually tried to sway uh, him away from like just embracing evilness, you know, in, in all of his characters. And in most cases, uh, he simply refused, and all his characters were evil. They won, they won out, and there was really no concept of or good or evil to him. And uh, besides that, he 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 had a background as. His family founded the first Baptist church. His family was very spiritual. He was really into the Bible, which is not odd for this region. This region is, of course, like right in the belt buckle of, you know, the Bible belt. It's right Uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, right? Yes, right outside. Yes. Uh, It's kind of interesting. This community actually is progressive for Mississippi, Meaning there was like uh, integration. There never was like any kind of uh, racial strife there. So uh, it is. It was kind of a progressive little area uh, in Mississippi. Kind of a progressive oasis, along with Oxford. I think is another uh, kind of progressive oasis in Mississippi. So that's interesting to note. So his family like were very upper middle class. Uh, his mother was like an elementary school teacher. His father worked in computers. Uh, which I think at that time period, Pearl, Mississippi had a computer industry. I think primarily that's basically what people were doing in uh, Pearl, Mississippi at the time. So he had like that going for him. And like I said, he knew the Bible inside and out. Him and this other uh, friend would go to the cafeteria. They actually, he had this presence, okay? He had this presence about him that people said that uh, people just saw this they they saw a kid that they said was quiet uh but they saw it kind of sense there was kind of a dark aura in this kid not a bad unpleasant feeling but a kind of kid that would be able to like get up lead prayer in the cafeteria other people would follow this kid so this kid had kind of a presence about him a charisma about him that that lord kind of kids so you could kind of say he was kind of a Pied Piper of, um, you know, some of the downtrodden and lonely. And he actually capitalized on that fact when they asked him, you know, about Luke and he, they asked him about the whole shooting and the whole ordeal. He said he was like Luke's only friend, his only guidance, like no one else was there for him. So he had this kind of aura cult leader about him. He had this like religious leader about him. He had this, I could, I guess you could say Joseph Smith and Jim Jones energy about him. So he was like dark and demented and twisted, but people really gravitated towards him. And that's the best I could say about Grant uh, Boyett. 
All right, well then let's start getting into this uh this enigmatic uh James <laughs> figure. So uh do you have anything else to add about his possible role in the shooting? Who is that? Who is that? Um uh, James Justin Sledge. Okay. Well, this is a very tricky and complex uh type of thing because he Justin Sledge now has a big presence on the internet. He has a channel on YouTube called Esoterica, um, from which he discusses, uh, coincidentally, esoteric topics. Um, and he, like I said, he, he has an avid interest. In, in many ways, he's kind of like Daniel Eccles in that way. He's kind, of, he's kind of like this figure that people say he was involved, but they don't know for sure or they're not definite about his involvement. Uh, one thing is for sure, Luke later did exonerate uh, Justin Sledge and say Sledge wasn't an active participant in planning the, um, you know, the whole entire shooting. But there are some like doubts from people because, like I said, Justin Sledge knew Grant Boyett from a he, he knew him from his inception into the RPG world, into the cafeteria. He obviously was very intelligent. He was very bright and he was able to like, you know, construct probably many different uh, types of possible scenarios uh, with, uh, with Boyd. And in my opinion, much, much, much more higher caliber and smarter, probably had a higher IQ than I would say Boyd did. Although Boyd was probably smart himself. Uh, so the sledge connection is kind of tricky. So what happened? So this is like the facts of the matter. When Luke came into the common area, he had his notes, manifestos, and everything within his hands. He handed it to Sledge. Sledge kind of sensed, of course, from what I've read about Sledge, he sensed that there was something afoul with Luke. And that there was like, he, I think he also kind of saw the rifle that was poking out of his trench coat. And so Sledge decided to go to the cafeteria i'm not not sorry not cafeteria but to the library because sled because like luke told him that he should probably go and not look back and to give his writings to grant and um and he actually instructed sledge on certain things to read he instructed sledge to read an excerpt from the gay science by frederick nietzsche about the madman uh, that's something that uh, Luke grasped and was uh, really latched onto when it came to Frederick Nietzsche. And so Sledge did that. Sledge complied. Uh, after the shooting in October 2nd, Sledge also affixed a note on a, I believe, in a, in a setting. They, they know for sure that it was probably Sledge. They don't know for sure who put it, the note. Uh, but it said, it said basically that Croth is down but it's not uh it's not it has not been destroyed its numbers are growing it references christina and it also reference references uh one of the other victims in the shooting and uh that and also like sledge later on when during a vigil vigil sorry vigil of of uh you know the victims and and the people that were injured he interrupted it and said that, um, you know, we're, we're growing in numbers. We're, we're going to be powerful. Luke is God. 
Uh, he also now now Justin Sledge himself on his own account on his website, he says that he did not say this. They said people misconstrued what he said. They said that people he was saying that Luke was kind of a victim of society. Society had treated Luke bad, but it didn't sound that way when he appeared on television or in the uh, during the vigil when when he interrupted it. It sounded like he was defending Luke. It sounded like he said that Luke was courageous and brave, uh, probably taking a note out of um, Nietzsche's book called "The Transvaluation of of." Uh, morals or values and uh, that's my belief on sledge i i don't but however it's kind of cryptic the way sledge is presented in, in this case and there's not a whole lot of information about his involvement so whatever involvement he has is between sledge luke and probably grants and we'll probably know for sure we'll never know for sure unless justin sledge comes out and divulges that which i don't think he will because he has a prominent place on the internet and pro and also in now in Judaism. So I don't think he's going to disclose uh, what happened on that day. So we'll never really know. Yeah. And before we get into some of his other intrigues here, it had just occurred to me, I would be remiss uh, without pointing out the notorious uh, Jeremy video that Pearl Jam did. Oh yeah. I was thinking about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that was probably another thing floating around this milieu as well. I mean, again, almost every disaffected loner loved that video. So, oh my goodness. You, you know what, though? The the Jeremy figure actually is quite different, though, than uh, than I would say Luke. Um, yeah, A yeah, bit more aggressive. No uh, Luke was more passive. Because, like, in that song, it talked about uh, how, you know, Jeremy, like, hit <laughs> hit the the singer uh, with a surprise left and bit the uh, old lady's recesses breast. Well, I, I think that's in reference, though, to when he's actually doing the shooting, though. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I just thought that was in passing, you know. Like, he... No, because I think there's even the earlier line in it where he says something like, he seemed a harmless little fuck to me. Yes, yes. Like that. So, uh, actually, no, I could very much see how Luke would have identified with the character. Oh, yeah. Um. Well, before we go on to that, let me just let me backtrack a little bit and say that um, Luke, like always, there was some warning signs about uh, his aggressiveness. He actually wrote stuff in English class about him torturing the principals, killing his uh, least uh, liked, you know, teachers. Uh, that, like I mentioned earlier, there was an incident with Grant Boyett, him torturing his dog Sparkle. So there was a lot of stuff. And by the way, the neighbors saw that. Uh, they didn't say anything about it. Um, they also heard screams coming from the house. And they, I think they called like maybe protective services or something. And they investigated. They didn't find anything. There was posters on his wall uh, declaring that one nation under the gun, under myself, under violence. Uh, there was like satanic uh, symbols all over his room. His mother noticed this and nothing was done about it. Uh, his mother wasn't didn't care very much. She was mostly partying and going out with various different boyfriends. So the warning signs was there already, you know, about Luke. So. And right. nobody did anything. 
Yeah, yeah, which has uh, become it, it continues to this day pretty much unabetted. So, oh yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, Mr. Sledge, uh, before he became Doctor Sledge, had some other. Uh, because uh, again, I should probably point out. I don't. I apologize if you had. By the way, I want to be fair because I, I don't want anybody to hit anybody with a libel suit. Because Sledge but, is active. I just want to. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. No, yes, absolutely. But I, I do think that they were initially like the six figures in Croth were investigated by the police for yes, uh, conspiracy. conspiracy. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, they were They're all arrested on October the seventh. Yes, they were all acquitted. Though we emphasize that they were acquitted uh, for Mr. Except for Grant. Grant was not acquitted. Grant was actually convicted, but he was he plead to a deal to where it was interfering with the principal affairs of the principal. That was actually the plea. And that was controversial because many people saw Grant as really the go ahead. That's a crime. (laughs) That's what that's what he interfering with affairs of the principal was the plea bargain. So he got like six. He got like um, six months in a boot camp prison, <laughs> and he got like five years of probation. All right. So um, <laughs> yeah, Doctor Sledge. So what were the what was the legal trouble that he had after this? Okay, um, the legal trouble he had afterwards was in around two thousand and three. I guess he had procured some uh, firearms off the internet. I don't I can't find much details about that other than he did spend, I think, six months in prison for that. That's the only details about that. And afterwards, it seems since then, he hasn't really gotten any kind of trouble with the law. So what has he been up to since then? Well, since then, it's it's rather interesting. Let me as a matter of fact, let me read some of his like credentials, because since then, he has been very busy sort of reinventing himself and. You know, like I said, I'm not I'm not going to throw any shade. I don't know specifically his, uh, you know, his ordeal. But if he like got over this and he sort of rehabilitated himself, then good on him. So let's see. He has he earned an undergraduate degree at Millsap College in Jackson, Mississippi. He went for a DRS in religious studies in Western esotericism and related currents. Uh, he went to something called the Universet von Amsterdam, um, which uh, he got his DRS, which I think is related to religion. He got his MA and P- PhD in philosophy at University of Memphis. Uh, prior, prior now, he's he's an adjunct professor in the Detroit metro area. Um, I think it was Wayne State he was uh, teaching at. And it says on his website that his focus is Western esoteric tradition or hermetic tradition, religious and philosophical thought in line of research to grasp the underpinnings of the workings of magic, esoteric influence, spirit possession, alchemy. I will mention also that um, by all accounts that I've read about Justin Sledge, it does appear that during the time of the Pearl, Mississippi incident, he did have an interest in alchemy. But I, I find it rather curious that he he got into spirit possession, of all things. Um, and uh, the intersection between metaphysics, ethics, and radical political philosophy. His dissertation is about the analysis of Karl Marx and his materialist theory of history and ethics. And uh, right now, he's basically immersing himself in the ancient Near Eastern prophetic tradition, spirit possession, 
and the modern Jewish world. And by the way, Justin Sledge is not an ethnic Jew. He is a convert to a reformist Judaism. Now, according to him, and I got to be careful here, reformist Judaism, and forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, but reformist Judaism, according to him, doesn't focus on the supernatural aspects of Judaism, primarily uh, sort of the non-metaphysical aspects of Judaism, and it sees it as kind of a developing and encompassing religion that changes with time. That's his words, not mine. But at the same time, he does seem to have an interest in the Zohar and also esoteric Judaism, and especially with uh, Jewish apocalypticism, from which he teaches from time to time with his uh, wife and rabbi, Alana Alpert, uh, who has quite an extensive and interesting history herself. And she is uh, a rabbi at the Congregation of Chichaya. Chichaya, forgive me for mispronouncing that, in Detroit. And she's a community organizer for Detroit Jews for Justice. And she has a BA in community studies. She's a graduate of the Avada and Activate Community Organizing Fellowship and Social Justice Leadership. And she worked as an organizer for NY. NY Jobs and Justice and Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. And she received her ordination in Hebrew College in Boston of 2014. So, you know, uh, Justin Sledge since his time at Pearl, Mississippi. And I want to emphasize this, that this is just the facts. This is not any kind of slander or whatever. Uh, But he's had quite an active, um, he's kind of had quite an active life since then. He's had a lot of interesting topics that he seems to discuss. He also has a YouTube called Esoterica from which he I must say he has a pretty good is <laughs> a pretty good in, uh, review of a dark song and that's a, it's an interesting channel but that's pretty much what he's been up to. Yeah, no, he is uh definitely a colorful figure that's uh beyond question.
Pearl shooting was supposedly inspired by Donna Tartt's The Secret History novel, a point that we've uh, been alluding to a little mm-hmm. bit here and there. So first off, what can you tell us about Tartt? Tartt's, um, Tartt comes from a working class background in Mississippi. She's a extremely gifted uh, writer, I would say in the tradition, probably a Faulkner, who also yeah, was, was gonna, Mississippi. Yeah, I was about to point. Thank you, Jason. Yes, yes. Mississippi actually does have a oh yeah, um, a rich literary tradition. With William Faulkner, and I read quite a bit of William Faulkner in high school too, because I was that kid. Oh yeah, really? I haven't really read much of Faulkner, admittedly. I I know he's a good writer, though. He's a he's a great writer. Um, yeah, you really want to blow American your mind, man? You try reading the Sound of the Fury. I I've heard that it's frustrating to grasp. I I've heard that it it can be very frustrating. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, a certain, I mean, I think it's the one section that's written for the perspective of the one kid that's mentally handicapped. Yes, that's the one, yes. But yes, yes. But, um, oh gosh, there is definitely, though, some great work in there. Um, But anyway, yes, uh, continue, Doc. Well, Donna Tartt, um, she comes from a working class background. She was a very gifted writer. She says that much of her inspiration came from her relatives, which, you know, if, if you don't know, it's a kind of a Southern tradition. To sit on the front porch, sip some, uh, you know, mint julep or some nice iced tea and tell, uh, spin yarns basically about the local people's stories and past. And she says that this kind of influenced her, her um, storytelling ability. And uh, from a very early age, she, um, she was fortunate enough, I think, to get a scholarship to Bennington, Vermont, which is a very prestigious liberal arts college uh from which you know her first book the secret history is practically about it's almost autobiographical and about much of her colleagues and people she interacted with at bennington college uh but yeah donna tart is a a very interesting figure i would say she's probably along with carmack mccarthy probably one of the and you know carmack mccarthy's not alive anymore but uh, she's probably one of the living I would say premier along with Thomas Pynchon, uh, literary greats. Uh, she, so her, her work is in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, very good for a postmodern novel. You know, she's very good for the postmodern novel, but, uh, that's pretty much most of her. And she has a very colorful life too, uh, for which I think a secret history was based. A lot of the characters I think in the book kind of reflected the fish out of water, kind of working class milieu when they interact with a lot of these elites, all these upper class kind of classicists that uh, have this sort of elitist attitude. Uh, and that is, that's reflected in her work. And that, it's not just also the secret history. She's also wrote the goldfinch um, and uh, the little, our, a little friend, the little friend, I mean, which all seem to revolve around murder, mystery, kind of intrigue, secrecy, intrigue espionage uh they all kind of have these various different kind of um let's just say these these kind of intertwined sort of elements that she has selected from this so she's very fascinated in that she's very fascinated in i would say probably esoteric history and knowledge uh truly a a luminary now as far as her connection to this shooting i don't think she has any direct connection per se I do think some of the elements in her novel probably influenced either Grants or Sledge to construct sort of a secret society. 
and also as like kind of an insular sort of group of <clears throat> eccentric people that were really into classical Western civilization and philosophy, and maybe also the uh, esoteric. Uh, but I, I think that's as far as her involvement in with this uh, Pearl, Mississippi shooting, other than she's from Mississippi. So what can you tell us a bit more about the novel, The Secret History? <clears throat> oh, boy. Um, this, uh, this would probably sort of um, require its own episode, but I'll try to go and divulge as much as I can about The Secret History. <clears throat> the Secret History is actually a reference to a Byzantine uh, Procorpius the author was writing about Justinian I and Theodora. And during his lifetime, he noticed, and also about their general and his wife, uh, I think Belladorus and his, his wife. And he noticed throughout the reign of Justinian and Theodora that there was quite a lot of corruption uh, within the kingdom. There was quite a lot of misdeeds. He characterizes Justinian as being greedy, as being cruel. He also characterizes Theodora. As you know, Theodora had this famous little anecdote that he talks about where she used to spread eagle on stage and sprinkle uh, seed from which he would let geese uh, pretty much uh, go down to her nether regions and uh, eat, eat, eat it off her nether regions and she was considered a prostitute. Well, he knew that uh, if he was ever to divulge this in, uh, you know, in, in when he was alive, he would be killed. So what he did is he made this to where upon his death or after the, you know, that this would be revealed. And this is sort of like reflected in Donna Tartt's The Secret History, although there is a bit more subtext than that. Uh, there's these various different characters. They all are a composite of people that Donna Tartt interacted with in her time at Bennington. Now, she denies this. She says that none of these characters reflect uh, real people. But there have been there was this thing that was published by Esquire, this article which did include Brett Bre Easton Ellis called The Oral History, which talked about the kind of literary brat pack, which he was a part of, and also Easton Ellis was a part of. And it talked about how um, each different character, and I'll get down to the character here in a minute, uh, were kind of representative of. Uh, people she interact with, her colleagues. Let me find the character list. But I, like I said, this is a very extensive kind of book. It, um, this is like it would require an entire episode. So it reflects also around this person named Julian Morrow. Julian Morrow constructed this cult-like, he's this cult-like classics professor. Um, he is really obsessed with beauty. And in many cases, I would even say that he is probably practicing even a soft form of eugenics, I would say, because people may not know this, but like to the ancient Greeks, and these are the ancient Greeks, not myself, they believed that people that were reflected as sort of aesthetic also reflected a kind of purity and a type of moral purity. 
And all these people in this group, they are striving for beauty. And the common theme throughout the book is that beauty is harsh. And Julian Morrow is this cult-like figure. And I, I have to say, out of all the cult researchers, out of all the people that study cults, I would say probably the secret history constructs the way cults are formed. Probably more so, I would say, than any book that I've read. Or um, So she does get that down. She gets down, and I would guess it would been that, it's been that way probably since time immemorial. So this unfolds. Julian Morrow leads these very gifted classes, classes, classic students. There is uh, Richard Pepin. He's the protagonist of the story. He's a graduate student in New England. The college is called Hampton. Um, he is like the outfish out of water. I think in many ways he probably reflects uh, Donna Terrett because he's from California. He's from a working class background. He desperately wants to fit in with these, this inner circle, this insular kind of community, but he doesn't fit in because of his working class background. They sort of shunned and castigate him in many ways. Um, and so he also, all these, he also falls upon a conspiracy of murder. They all get together and they all want to experience the Dionysian uh, experience. That is Dionysian ecstasy. That's their objective. Their objective is not only to capitalize on beauty, but their, their kind of um, goal is to also capture Dionysian ecstasy. And so while they're doing this in a fray, they kill this farmer. And there's this other person by the name of Bunny Cochran. Bunny Cochran knows this. And he knows like all the dirty, dark secrets. In many ways, he's, this is reflecting back to Procurius in the secret history. And he knows all these different kinds of dirt on all of the officials. And they hate Bunny for this. And I, I'm of the belief also that this is not only a Dionysian ritual. This is also something that is reflected, I think, part of their society. They almost think they are godlike. They think they're godlike to the extent to where someone like a farmer, someone like an outsider, is considered sort of inferior. And it would be nothing to kill him. And they, they don't think much, enough, much of it. Bunny, obviously, is not an innocent protagonist either. So all these people are hunting for the beautiful aesthetic. They're hunting for the Dionys Dionysian ecstasy. They're performing these sort of mysteries, you know, in the modern world. And they think they're, they're trying to elevate themselves to God level. And it's, it's all about this intrigue. They get mixed up in this. And uh, people, of course, fall in love. And this whole melodrama kind of plays out. Now, I'm just going to say here personally that I think if there was, and this is just my speculation, I can't think if there was a murder cult. I think if a murder cult existed, it would probably be modeled upon this because someone in within their bracket, someone within their kind of status, they would want to construct this kind of melodrama, this Dionysian mystery, and they'd want to play it out and they want to see if they could get away with murder pretty much in the same way that Leopold and Loeb tried to see if they could get away with murder, they, that they could embody the Ubermensch. In this case, they were trying to chase Dionysus. They were trying to chase beauty. And so they murder Bunny. And this is how the whole thing unfolds. The whole thing goes over this entire intrigue. And I know I haven't explained this completely, 
but this is sort of my conception of the secret history. So I've tried to give people a summary of it. But did you get what I was saying about the Dionysian sort of mystery? That's pretty much what they're doing. They're playing out uh, Dionysian mystery. When we talk about, and you've talked about the sort of uh, performance art you're talking about, you know, this is what I think they're doing. I think they're playing out the performance art. They're playing out the melodrama within their circle. And this is like reflecting. And they, they accidentally killed the farmer in this. But one of the main characters named Henry actually says, what is death but distributing just distribution of matter? That's the way he reflects upon the death of the, the farmer. And uh, this whole entire circle, I think, is reflected probably on a real life situation that may or may not have occurred in Bennington. So that's the whole interest of the secret history. Now, it also reminds me a bit, uh, I was going to say, of the Alfred Hitchcock film, Rope. Yes, Rope. Yes, Leopold and Loeb. Yeah, yeah, which I was going to say, I believe was also based on that as well. So that's interesting. Um, it's just, again, I think you kind of get elements as well of surrealism and kind of the whole concept of the exquisite corpse and the cut up, what, you know, later kind of grew out of the cut up method from this as well. But it's sort of this intermeshing with uh, these different fictional milieus. And then as it uh, kind of spreads into reality, this uh, blurring of the uh, lines, if you will. But we'll get into that here in a little bit. There Okay. They're really into Dionysus. They're really into they're really into the Apollonian, the Nietzschean concept, um, and the birth of tragedy. They're really into the Apollonian. They're really into the Dionysus. They're into the interplay between the two, which the Apollonian is supposed to be the sta stable. It's supposed to be the stability, and the Dionysian kind of is the one that tears across the seams and gets into ecstasy and gets into wildness and gets into you know passion. And so this is the the two kind of interplay that. I think is what Donna Tart is trying to say. She's trying to paint on her canvas a Greek tragedy. And that's what she's trying to convey all while the backdrop is also commenting about class. It's also talking about excess in society. And she's, she's also talking about like um, classics as well. So she uses this and this is the brilliance I think of this book. No, it sounds utterly fascinating. Oh yeah. Wait to read it. It's great. So she's under Donna Tart has undergone a major resurgence in hypnosis in recent years. If she ever really went away from it, but um, it's tied to the so-called dark academia movement that briefly thrived on TikTok during the 2020 lockdowns. I think it even got like a New York Times piece. So, Doc, what was this movement about, and how was Tart linked to it? That's interesting. Um, I'm not really sure 100% what the dark academia is about other than it seems to be about taking sort of brooding sort of gothic themes uh that are that were common in the book and i think in many ways it's it's sort of a rejection of the of like what we have in the modern day present society and i want to say this is only my opinion alone is that people are kind of tired i would say of the excessive consumptive kind of lifestyle that they have. They want something that is like a little bit deeper in meaning and they want something that reflects a little bit more, I would say, classical aesthetics. They 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 rejecting sort of this postmodern malaise that is like in modern society. And I don't mean to, you know, pontificate too much about this, but I think they're rejecting that and they're trying to uh, encompass and envision kind of a uh, kind of nostalgia of the past and reflect upon that. And then, the, the disposable culture is, is like no more. They want, they want to be a part of like this. And also people, 
sort of want to be a part of an exclusive group. I think this is like true for Zoomers. Zoomers want to be have something unique about them. And we also see this kind of in the book uh, that what makes them unique is they're into classics. This distinguishes them from like all the rest of the majors on campus. This distinguishes them uh, from all the rest of the students. And they want to have like something unique about them. And they want to have something tied, I think, to antiquity as opposed to like just the modern world. I could be wrong about that, but that's what I that's what I get from the dark academia sort of uh, trend on TikTok. I think it still exists to a certain extent. Yeah, I believe so as well. It's definitely, I mean, another fascinating thing about all of this. Um, so anyway, well, let, let's get more into Tart's links to Brett Easton, uh, uh, Ellis, uh, Eaton, well, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Brett Easton Ellis, yeah. Yeah, Eaton Ellis. Do you have anything else to add about that? Uh, they both dated for temporarily for a little bit. I think uh, Tart also, um, her little weird sort of classicist group is referenced in, you know, uh, Rules of Attraction. Uh, when, when like I think one of the characters in in Easton Ellis's and Rules of Attraction says those weird classicists uh, that roamed the hall speaking archaic Greek, uh, that's that was that's references and it actually foreshadowed a secret history. It actually foreshadowed her book. So there's no doubt that Donna Tart, um, Jason Lethem, Brett Easton Ellis, and I think another person at Bennington were all colleagues of one another and they all sort of shared um, each other's uh, sort of uh, history. And I think she had a fondness for Brett Easton Ellis. I think one of her characters, uh, let me see the character. One of her characters, I believe is probably model. And by the way, that's on page 160. They say that weird classics group, they're probably roaming the countryside, sacrificing farmers, performing pagan rituals. And I want to say also within the book, I believe that is a ritual sacrifice on both accounts. And if you know anything about Dionysus, Dionysus is sort of uh, this fertility type and also tied to sensuality and passion. And it does, and, and in very archaic times, including going back to the Etruscan times, there was ritual sacrifices to ensure sort of the abundance of the crop. And uh, this is reflected probably in also in Osiris as well. Uh, you know, you have the ritual killing of the king is probably connected to that as well. The very archaic rainmaker type king. So they say that and and um, she he basically put Easter eggs concerning uh, Donna Tartt's work. Um, let me also like go back to what I was talking about in terms of some of the reference points he was making. So there's this guy named Todd O'Neill, and I do recommend everybody go read the Esquire article about the, the secret, the oral history. It does get more into this. It does talk about Donna Tartt. Um, and that's published in 2019. So Todd O'Neill thinks he's the inspiration for Henry. Um, and Matt Jacobson believes he's the inspiration for Bunny. And some people think that the charismatic classics professor of Julian Morrow was probably C Claude Fredericks. Uh, Claude Fredericks is a very beloved professor there of classics and a very eccentric character. And um, I'm now I, now I'm going to talk about the character that I think is probably referenced to Brett Easton Ellis. That's Fra Francis Abernathy. Francis Abernathy is a gay character. 
and he has like feelings for Charles. Charles is the brother of Camellia. And I think this is probably Brady St. Ellis because I don't think Brady St. Ellis at the time he was at Bennington had come out yet. Um, but I think this was like a very big thing for him. And he probably, probably Tart also sensed that as well uh, when they dated each other. And he probably made that into a character. And I believe Brady St. Ellis also doesn't come from a working class background. Um, unlike Tart, Tart comes from a working class background. I think. Easton Ellis is from a little bit more of a uh, pampered background. And so this, this character, Francis Abernathy is more, he's kind of privileged and sort of a blue blood background. He then moves to New York city, I believe Easton Ellis lived in New York city. And um, he comes, he has access to this country house and he spends time there. And he's kind of passive when it comes to like killing bunny uh, when the whole entire uh, clique is trying to kill him to conceal any kind of secret. So I think Francis Abernathy is probably the person that Donna Tart modeled after Brady Stanellis. And by the way, guys, I'm sorry if I got any spoilers to the book. It's an old book. It, come from, it comes from like 1992. And most people like listening to this probably have either read it or have some familiarity with the dark um, academia. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, on the one hand, she has the uh, the characters based on uh, people. I mean, potentially, I should say, mm, potentially on her real uh, real life friends at the time, or at least her acquaintances. Anyway, uh, you know, obviously, there's a lot of um, uh, instances of that in literature throughout the years. I mean, I was thinking a bit of the uh, the whole jazz era, the kind of group of writers from the Lost Generation, Hemingway. Um, Fitzgerald, I mean, all those guys. I, you know, because what was the book that uh, Hemingway wrote specifically? I think The Sun Also Rises that really went into um, a lot of their experiences in Paris after the First World War. Um, but also The Beats, I think, would probably be another uh, parallel to that, too. Uh, but it's it's interesting to me, especially that uh, uh, Easton Ellis put some of this into his own novels, like references to her work in it. Mm-hmm. It almost kind of gives it a bit of a a sense of the circle of writers around Lovecraft as well, how they mm-hmm. would sort of incorporate different aspects of his fiction into their own. So, yeah, it's, it's again, another compelling aspect of the, the, this sort of creation of almost a meta universe across. Um, and the mystery school aspect and the Dionysian aspect is what I find really fascinating about this whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. And the ritual killing as well. And I mean, again, both, you know, I mean, again, I can't really speak to Tart, but I know in Easton Ellis's case, a lot of the uh, his works are inspired by real life people that he knew and that kind of thing. So it's, again, interesting where you see how there's a lot of this blurring as well between the lines of fiction and uh, reality and something that I think that they've continued to play into more and more as the years go on, as uh, we'll get into here. Well, actually, yeah, on that note, I mean, let's, I guess, delve in now. Unless you do you have anything else uh, to add on the Ellison, though, before we get into some of the more kookier stuff? <laughs> no, I have nothing else. Uh, I will say one thing. Uh, you could also add Joan Didion to that, uh, that list as well. He's really obsessed with Joan Didion. And I think Didion's uh, one of her, her son, I think, also went to Bennington as well. Of course. <laughs> All right. So, so Easton Ellis's work has become more frankly hyperstitional in recent years his last novel the shards is considered quote-unquote auto fiction basically it's 
a fictional account of Alice's high school years in which uh, one of his schoolmates is a serial killer. Uh, but Alice, who's you know a character, I mean, I think, I think he's the main character in the book, yeah. has been going down this path for a while now. He was set to write a script based on the so-called Golden Suicides, which involved Teresa Duncan and Jeremy Blake. Uh, the tragic event potentially spawned an alternate reality game that used it as a basis for uh, just a lot of insanity. And Ellis was willing to write a script about it at the, the height of all of this. Uh, and potentially the movie would have been directed by Gus Van Sant, which is also interesting. He was the one who did uh, Goodwill Hunting, which I know a lot of my sync friends adore. So interesting combination of all that if it would have uh, come to be. He also did a movie about uh, school shooters, Elephant. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, he's done a couple of interesting things. Actually, he did Wonder Boys, too, if I remember correctly. Or Actually, that might have been another director. Don't hold me to that. Um, yeah, no, I think that was the guy who did LA Confidential. Not I'm thinking of Curtis Hansen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So anyway, I don't want to get the contractors any more combobulated than I already have. <laughs> All right, so Alice, he also wrote a script that uh, was eventually made into a movie based on the smiley face killers, <laughs> which he really did is basically a straight-up slasher. Not a good movie. And then more recently, he's built up this, you know, whole mystique around the secret history several years, like you were talking to about before the publication. So uh, do you think that the killings in the Pearl influenced his later approach to art? Um, yes, I... I... I, I know it's speculated to say, but yes, I think um, I think Brad Easton Ellis has a fascination with the serial killer as aesthetic. I think he has a fascination also with it. And you can clearly see that in like American Psycho. American Psycho, I think, is very vivid, even though it all is sort of reflected in you know Patrick Bateman's mind. Just the graphic detail of many of the kills. And also, like, the, the graphic detail, I would say, in a lot of his novels does kind of indicate maybe an intimate knowledge of sort of the, um, you know, I would say the, the serial killer mystique. And he's also, he, on his podcast, he covered, I think, the Zodiac Killer as well. You know, he was really into that as well. So, yes, he's, there's a backdrop. I think he may have witnessed something with, you know, uh, this in his time at Bennington and it must have really affected him because like I said, it's very autobiographical. If not him, I think he probably had some intimate knowledge of some of these inner workings uh, with some of these groups. And he is kind of creating this sort of like hyperstition and he is blurring the lines of reality between uh, the whole concept, the serial killer and the whole concept of uh, murder and uh, art and intrigue and this is also my belief that if someone was to come from i say his background or some other background that maybe uh were hiding in the shadows they would do it in the form of art they would they would uh, channel dionysus they would channel sort of uh, nietzsche and they would do it in the form of abstract art where it would be a performance art and it would it would be displayed in that way. It would be kind of artistic and it would be their magnum opus and uh, pretty much the, that would be their canvas. So yes, I do think so. I do think he's creating that sort of mythos. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't think that there was anything maybe necessarily intentional when this all started. 
because again, as I just talked about before, you know, this was kind of a common literary device where circles of writers would reference each other, you know, base characters off of each other, you know, put uh, allusions to each other's fiction into their own works, create these meta universes. But then you have this whole thing with Pearl that just sort of suddenly happens where potentially, potentially, the students <laughs> are using, hypothetically, the secret history as a basis for mm -hmm. creating this cult. I would speculate that that might have really put the whammy, so to speak, on Ellis and... Uh, I'm going to say this possibility of what could be accomplished with fiction. Well, so anyway, go ahead, Doc. Sorry. I'm going to say this, Stephen, that I think what happened in Pearl, Mississippi is kind of a pale imitation of what the elites did and what the elites conspire to do. I think what you have is a lot of times and you have people from this background, they're in flyover country. And yes, Donna Tartt's from flyover country. That it's really kind of a different world when like you go into like a landscape such as Bennington. The people there are acquainted with like different kind of milieus and different kind of folkways than uh, some of the people that are in flyover country, but they sort of kind of replicate one another and they sort of give back this feedback loop to one another. And they do kind of create, as you mentioned, this kind of meta universe. But I think primarily what you saw in Pearl, Mississippi was kind of an impale imitation of what the elites want to do in terms of like reconstruct the mystery schools. Um, you know, what, what Christopher Knowles talks with myth Mithras and, and I think in this case, they're channeling like Dionysus and uh, they're trying to create this kind of a ritual around Dionysus and the, these, the classics and trying to channel onto something. I think the, what you saw, however, uh, was kind of a pale in Pearl, Mississippi was kind of a pale imitation and, uh, what people in flyover country were doing as opposed to Bennington, I think was sort of the real deal. Yeah. I mean, potentially so. Um, but it is fascinating where we do see this sort of lineage with the RPGs and so forth. I mean, obviously you, again, we would be kind of remiss, but um, the West Memphis three seemed to be another, oh, yeah. uh, you know, again, kind of aspect of this whole thing that was playing out in the nineties in regards to that. And then also the, uh, the Kentucky vampires, so, uh, but anyway, to wrap things up, to bring stuff into the really, really weirdness here, I, I want to address the whole Riverdale link to that. So it's, it's all of this. So it's generally acknowledged that season four of the uh, CW hits was heavily influenced by Tart and the secret history. Uh, both revolve around exclusive circles of students trying to stage the perfect murder and um, it's even more evident to me after you've sort of broken down the book here, uh, Doc, because in the case of Riverdale, you have the character of Jughead Jones, who uh, is brought into this really exclusive school. Uh, Jughead's kind of from the wrong side of the tracks in Riverdale. His uh, dad was the head of the local gang. In fact, I think at this point he had already been the head of the servants as well, Jughead, that is to say. So anyway, he's... A, a talented writer, though, he gets accepted into this exclusive school. He's brought into this even more exclusive sort of writer's circle. That's, it, it's also kind of partly based off of Skull and Bones, I think. They have their own uh -huh. yeah. preparation, uh, initiation rituals and all this other stuff going into it. So it's very clear that there's a very strong aspect of uh, influence here with the secret history in it. So anyway, they, they've 
very much acknowledge that influence, right? But it's very much, in fact, I don't think it's been remarked about at all, is that season three seems to be entirely based around the events of Pearl. So in season three, it centers around a D&D like game that's called Gargoyles and Griffins or GNG. And it's basically spawned this full blown cult uh, among the students. There's even this uh, statue of this deity. I can't remember what they call like the head demon thingy. And it's off the top of my head now, but very much it's a croth like, mm-hmm. you know, kind of entity centered around this. And again, you find out that there was a cult that it created this game that's based out of actually this uh, really barbaric reform school that's run uh, by this group of nuns that uh, kind of uh, go a little silly. My best imitation of Peter <laughs> Sellers and Dr. Strange. I'll be a little silly, Dimitri. That's kind of <laughs> all the nuns went in Riverdale. They went a little silly <laughs> uh, to try to reform some of their charges. They created this gng game with this demonic figure uh, gregor whatever you want to call it the center of it uh, eventually it gets out it spreads the yeah, gregor, yeah. gregor yes yes so yeah it's this is just really fascinating to me because riverdale it very much lives up to its uh hype as a uh a kind of modern day twin peaks in my opinion it very much is and i don't say that lightly twin peaks along to x files it's like mother's milk to me in millennium for that matter i just oh, yeah. grew up on this stuff these are my my babies here i was very shocked uh to enjoy it so much and a big hat tip by the way to laura shapiro who had urged me to watch this and sabrina i sabrina i was a little mixed on but riverdale <laughs> is, is the real deal i i was very shocked by it it almost kind of starts out in a whole laura palmer-esque murder mystery and just gets weirder and weirder from there and it, even in this case it's just such a strange setup because it's based on uh, the archie comic books even though as far as I, I i don't really know much of anything about archie i it would occasionally see them when i went to the comic book store and whatever but i never had much interest in it but when i've been told it's definitely very very loosely based on that it almost seems to use uh the archie comics as a kind of form of subversion if you will almost as the base yeah. of it <sighs> So then on top of that, it has all of these peculiar references to these specific instances here, which we've talked about before, not well known at all. It's not just like I said, the fact that it's one season, but I mean, you have really two seasons that are centered around the events of Pearl on the one hand, and then later the book that has been linked potentially to the Pearl incident. So yeah and then on top of that this show has become an inexplicably big hit just to me at least because it is a very strange show getting into the latter seasons but it really seems to resonate with the kids uh so yeah there's a lot of peculiarities to all this i don't know if you've uh seen it doc but i have you- not i've never seen i've never seen riverdale but i will check it out now that you especially the uh comparison between twin peaks uh you have my interest. I have heard about it. I've seen it on TikTok uh, referenced a couple times, but I haven't really, no, nah, I haven't really seen it. It's kind of interesting. They use the Archie comics as a backdrop, which you know, has been involved with so many like unusual crossovers, including one with the Punisher. So it's, it's interesting. 
Yeah, it's another just sort of strange aspect of all of this. You know, we've we've seen in the case with Pearl life imitating arts, and then you have this uh, really surprisingly popular TV show that has incorporated so much of these obscure instances into some of its best seasons. <laughs> I will say this: I guess, like, <laughs> I guess anything could be like substituted now for sort of a backdrop and even for an egregore i mean i guess that's kind of the central premise of like chaos magic now so just well, to interject yeah, that so i mean very much so and it's just another amazing aspect of all of this when you also sort of throw in uh, simultaneously what brett easton ellis has been doing in recent years with smiley face killer yeah zodiac killings uh with his own sort of hyperstitional work with shards I want to say also that um, there is references to Donna Tart and Ellis uh, in the in the show. They do reference them. Yeah, they actually no, they, do they have characters. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. As long as there obviously there's also some direct references to Twin Peaks itself, and just well, they get into some of the other things with the RPGs that uh, actually Knowles and I have gotten into in a couple of our uh, presentations on that. So can't remember the name of the one kid who had committed suicide from the Dungeons and Dragons back in um, the early 80s, but he uh, would go down to play D&D, I think, in this like abandoned missile silo or something mm, like that. That's interesting. They have this whole thing in Riverdale where they, uh, especially in season three, they're playing D&D down there, but it kind of becomes this hangout for like the kids. And yeah, it's just such a bizarre show on so many levels because they're supposed to be in high school uh really up until i think like season five but these kids you know they own multiple businesses and there's also as you've been kind of alluding to as well this nostalgia throughout the show mm-hmm. uh for these earlier eras i think that's maybe partly why the archie comics are sort of used as the uh kind of a launching point for it because it is this uh, you know this character from this more innocent time in america and certainly within the show there is a very much a retro sense in it which i think was partly inspired by twin peaks i mean you have that kind of aesthetic where the kids still continue to hang out at pops which is this old 50s style diner with their uh, milkshakes and their hands mm-hmm. and this is all sort of you know, unfolding against the backdrop where you do have this other strange stuff going on with the cults and the the games and then later the Mothman. <laughs> <laughs> so there is channeling of demons in the show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They definitely leave it ambiguous as to what's going on with that. But yeah, it is interesting how much cults are incorporated in the plot line. But at the same time, there is this yearning for this more innocent time and a lot of the aesthetics in it uh, with the kids and just, you know, the hangout spots and some of the other things like that. I mean, the fact that they use just like a role-playing game, I think, in some ways is kind of antiquated because so much in this day and age, I mean, kids, I think, would probably be going more with video games or even some like Pokemon Go or something yeah. like that. Um, and that is kind of this one of the stranger things about the show. I mean, it's almost only really sometimes when the kids use their uh, cell phones, you know, you could almost think that it's uh, taking place in the 90s or even the 80s or something. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, another one of the uh, very strange things that seem to have come out of all of this. Let me rewind a little bit and talk a little bit about Croth. We didn't touch upon Croth. Let me just Oh, yeah, yeah. tell us a bit about Croth. That's well. 
here's an interesting aspect of it. As you can kind of glean, um, these people were edgelords and they were really into deep into the Simon Necronomicon. And Luke and both Grant uh, were really obsessed with the, the Simon Necronomicon. So uh, Luke, what he would do um, is that there was this one particular kid that uh, was pretty much picking on Luke and his name was Danny. And he was like, I think he was Lucas's friend. And so what, what, um, what Grant told him to do was draw a pentagram and to put the pentagram, go into a dark room, kneel and put the pentagram on his head. And this is, I know this is, this sounds absurd, uh, but, and to picture the kid in his head that he wanted to destroy well, afterwards, he read a spell from the Necronomicon, and shortly thereafter, the particular kid that he wanted to make disappear from his life, named Danny, didn't die, but his cousin, Rocky, actually did die while trying to cross the street the very next day. I wanted to add that, and that is sort of where also the advent of Croth came from. It came from Grant and also sort of Luke. Uh, channeling and using the Simon Necronomicon and manifesting it into reality and creating this sort of entity. Uh, Luke actually believed in it. He believed it and with all his heart and he saw these. He claimed now this is kind of absurd, but this is what he wrote. He said he saw demonic entities visit him in his room in wearing sort of uh, red cloaks with red eyes with spiked heads. That's what he claimed that was doing it. He claimed that Boyette would channel each one of these demons and assign these demons to uh, people in the role-playing game. So they would play out these demons in each one of their sort of uh, role-playing adventures. So it is kind of interesting that maybe perhaps unintentionally Grant and uh, Luke probably created this egregore and manifested it into reality because it did seem to like come true whatever they wished and pictured in their head at the time they were manifesting it and praying uh towards it i i can't explain it it's it's kind of a synchronicity that i think uh uh does kind of fit into hyperstition and and also what's interesting about croth as well is that croth was identified actually as as a toad this is interesting. Croth was identified as a toad. It's actually from the word croti, which is toad in German. And that's kind of interesting considering what happened on the internet with Keck and with the alt-right and uh, sort of with the right-wing culture that developed on the internet. I just wanted to put that out there that I think that's interesting that Croth is sort of a take on uh, the word croti. And this actually either was an i don't know whether it was invented by grant uh or assigned to his cult but this is they somehow manifested this out of air out of either air or uh the word kefka when uh when he was actually assigned this sort of character which kefka in itself is i think a villain in in a role-playing game called final fantasy 3 uh in america uh, but I, I found that interesting about the origins of Croth. I wanted to interject that before we, uh, before we, you know, tuned out. That's no, it's a good point. Um, 
it's kind of another interesting parallel with this and the uh the whole kentucky vampire thing with uh, rod farrell i think it was as well because uh, again he also had a copy of the uh the simon necronomicon and again there was the huge presence of the uh the rpgs and those incidences as well again it's just it, it's fascinating you know again because this is also very different groups otherwise um the kids in uh pearl were certainly from more i would say firmly middle class upper middle class and they were all highly intelligent feral mm-hmm. circle uh yeah they're more working class you could say. yeah that, that that's being charitable but um <laughs> yeah 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 but again it's it's just a fascinating how in the 90s you did seem to see these uh what is the fascination with the, the same tools showing up over and over again in a lot of these circles it was always uh almost kind of a uh a kid if you will for developing i mean a cult you had your rpgs the simon negronomicon uh the Marilyn manson cds a couple of the other trappings yeah. hypothetically again i think this would probably be the kids in the modern era they would probably be on telegram they would be on uh, discord trying to uh paint like 09a sigils i think they would probably be into that today if there are any kids like that yeah Yeah. absolutely well doc you got anything else here before we sign off sir no that's it i want to thank you for bringing me on to talk about this Uh, it's definitely something i I wanted to talk about and i think more people should look into it it's it's uh, not very it's not explored enough yeah, absolutely, and I thank you for bringing. Oh, oh yeah, and I, there, there is actually time. there is actually one more thing I want to say, and maybe it. in the future we'll touch upon this. But one thing that I noted, uh, kind of tying with the RPG, is sort of how spree shootings are developing more into like first person shooters, and how that sort of thing, and how they're sort of working with drone. I would say drone technology and computer interface. And it's interesting also when I discussed with you about Luke, how the Secret Service visited him after the whole Columbine happened, uh, all these like different. And by the way, this this Pearl, Mississippi incident did uh, invoke a lot of different copycats, including in Mississippi, which they all stopped before they happened, all with the trench coat, uh, all with the same sort of uh, uh, copycat signature. But what was interesting is the Secret Service actually visited uh, Luke in prison in Parchman, Mississippi, when he was in there. And he they interviewed him about his psychology and about uh, the mentality of like the, the school shooter, the spray shooter. So I find it interesting that potentially in the future, they may be looking at these types of interfaces with drone technology uh, to potentially i would say control sort of human behavior and interface it together i know that's kind of far out there uh but there actually is a couple papers uh that uh let me see i will actually want to reference these papers that was written about this let me see if i can find the references to them well, you're looking for that i mean to interject it is compelling because this is you know it's it's fascinating because this is happening in 97 right uh at kind of the dawn of the modern uh first person shooter era um especially with the whole time well they'd already had them a little bit with like the arcade games and stuff but this is really when the tom clancy stuff the first person shooters with all the military trappings started to come out and subsequently became really big 
uh, going into the 21st century with all the different Tom Clancy games and then also Call of Duty. And certainly, I mean, again, I, I think that it's very perceptive. Um, you have to also kind of keep in mind as well that uh, a good friend of Tom Clancy was Colonel John Alexander, who uh, was the Army's point man, even though he's kind of depicted as a, depicted as a buffoonish figure. He was the uh, the Army's point man for many years on non-lethal weapons, quote-unquote. And, yeah, when you look at the allegations against something with Cambridge Analytica, what can be done with data mining? And, uh, okay, Stephen, uh, here's the reference. Global. It's uh, Air, Air Command and Staff College, Air University, the shape of things to come, the military benefits of the brain-computer interface in 2040. And this is by Patrick A. Cutter, Major, uh, USAF, MTASCP. That is with a, uh, a master's in clinical laboratory science. That's one of the studies. And the other one is the gamification of violent extremism and exploration of emerging trends, future threat scenarios, and potential P slash CVE solutions. And that's by a doctor, let me see, it's Dr. Siraji Lakhani, Dr. Jessica White, and Claudia Walner. And this is by the Radicalization Awareness Network Policy Support. So these studies have been out there and they are studying the way that drone technology interfaces with uh, human behavior, uh, they claim as predictive models. Um, well, I'd say perhaps, maybe perhaps more nefarious purposes. Uh, if you don't mind, Stephen, before we go off here, I know if we've went over the two-hour mark, but let me just read briefly from this. Um, a BCI device is simply a direct artificial conduit allowing for the transfer of information, a simulation between brain and computer it allows seamless interaction. The core concept involves software translating or manipulating neural activity. The neural signals or lack thereof can be implemented as a program output. As a type of output, say a command typed from a keyboard software translated brain activity could be encoded to be utilized in any intended manner, whether it is stored, transmitted, or used as an input or trigger for yet other programs. Um, it says also BCI devices can be categorized in three types. Those that process only ability to detect and translate brain activity, devices that solely provide stimulation to the brain, and bidirectional BCIs, which have the capability to both read and stimulate neural activity. Unidirectional BCIs are useful, however. It is the bidirectional device that opens the potential for the Department of Defense to fully realize and exploit powerful communica communicative and human machine performance boosting opportunities. So that is from the, the paper. The shape of things to come, the military benefits of brain-computer interface in 2040 by Patrick A. Cutter, Major, USAF, MTASCP, and uh, Master's Clinical Laboratory Science. I just, wanted to, I just wanted to put that in the end and uh, integrate that with the RPG. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the whole man-machine integration of this is crucial and like I said, I think that's why it's important to remember that Alexander was uh, working with Tom Clancy on some of these games. So, yeah, it's um, a brave new world. Oh, yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, it uh, certainly will be.
Well, Doc, I uh, thank you again. It has been an absolutely fascinating show as always. Thank uh, you, Stephen. That we will sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support. And with that, as always, good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blue got you in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the go my people there, they're feeling me Down low skin, low more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki, up Stuck down in this stick Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me, stick it out Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold Jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace Go to war for it Say one, two, three Geronimo Jump baby we gotta go Screaming with me Scream Geronimo Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a gang is Chapo Come on, legalize it Don't need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it out your ass, sonny What?